how are you not talking about like Trevor Zagros right now? Or like, I don't know, like Noel Pat. Yeah, the twinks, you know, you gotta like, <laughs> Roman Yossi is so five years ago. <laughs> Quite literally. I'm like, mm, you're behind the times. You were evidently not following the AO3 girlies on Twitter because then you would know who the hockey players du jour are. Hey everyone, welcome back to Goodwood, a hockey fandom podcast. This is Jess, and I'm joined today by Beck. Kit is busy traveling America and having an amazing time, so they won't be able to be with us today. First of all, Beck and I recently had a glorious Seattle hockey trip experience. We're going to do just a brief recap of that. Um, impressions on Seattle versus Pittsburgh as like hockey going cities. The kind of bulk of today's episode, we're going to spend talking about the uh, Greg Wyshynski tweet from a couple weeks ago about the increasing female demographics of NHL viewership and what accounts for that. We're going to just process some thoughts and feelings that we have about the explanations that were given and also the defense that um, has come from fandom. And then we'll use that to kind of open up into a broader conversation about what happens when that sort of fourth wall collapses, when transformative fandom cultures come into contact with mainstream fan cultures or the mainstream press? And just like using this as a chance to think through and parse through some of our thoughts and feelings about that increasing contact between those two communities and what that means for fanish practices. I will start by saying that Seattle is a lovely city. I've been there a few times, but not for over a decade. And I was really excited to get to go back and to also incorporate uh, my new fandom. Well, I say new as if it hasn't been six years, but my most recent fandom into the proceedings of travel. And it was incredible. Jess is a consummate hostess. Thank you. Thank you. My goodness, does that city know how to put on a hockey game? Yeah, tell us because I haven't really experienced. So I've only been to the Dallas Arena, the Colorado Arena, and this one, obviously. But tell us like how it compares to Pittsburgh. I thought you had some interesting thoughts on that. I've now been to a few different arenas like very recently, but I'll only go through with talking about Seattle in the specific case. You can tell that the arena is brand new. You can tell that it's being put on by, you know, a wealthy company and, you know, a, a wealthy city. And not, not, I mean, I suppose Seattle is more wealthy than Pittsburgh. I haven't looked at the numbers. I, I kept making the joke to people that I felt like I was watching an Amazon original before every period. <laughs> like they have a full like audiovisual experience with light up statues and like there's a cast of characters. There's a lot going on and it was my favorite are the inexplicable hot women riding on horseback. You know, they're just like part of the they're like female cowboys. And they're part of the show <laughs> in the video, to be clear, not on the ice. They're like, we need to include uh, the eastern part of Washington somehow. So we're going to get some riding cowboys out there, I guess. Yeah, I'd read the fic, you know. <laughs> Honestly, yes. No, it was it was incredible. I was so impressed by the show that they put on. It was gorgeous. The vibes at the arena were very fun. The arena itself is beautiful. I had a great time. I found everyone there to be incredibly polite, which was great, and a contrast, unfortunately, to one of the more recent arenas I've been to. But I was just so agog at what a slick experience it was and how how shiny everything was and new and beautiful. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I Pittsburgh is pretty rinky-dink compared to this. Jeez. <laughs> I would say that, you know, PBT or Paints Arena – is much more modest. It's smaller. It doesn't have as much modern shine. I think it's been said that we're actually the only arena that doesn't have like the full on ice projections yet. I might be wrong, but I remember reading that somewhere. Like you can tell, honestly, I get better photos when I take warm up photos at away arenas because the white lights they have are a lot better than PBG Paints arenas, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. But it kind of contextualized for me what our arena looks like in comparison to some of these other arenas that I've never been to. 
now that I have. I get it now, too, when people say that we're a really corporate arena because PBG Paints Arena does not get loud, unfortunately. I wish it did, but compared to some of these other ranks, it does not have the kind of bombastic energy that some other places do. Interesting. So, yeah, but um, Seattle knows how to put on a, a damn good show. Yeah, and you said even the glass was clearer so that we could really (laughs) see our guys in their enclosure, safely trapped within their enclosure. (laughs) That was very exciting for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it was very fun to go with you because you knew exactly where to stand. I feel like the last parts, like the last times I've like not been familiar enough with their on-ice locations to know, but we stood like right behind Sid and then Gino came over and was like messing with them and like it was beautiful. It was beautiful to see. Being a seasoned arena goer, translates a little bit even when you don't know the exact yeah you're like this is where Sid will be performing his rituals (laughs) and I was like thank you (laughs) I'd love to see them yeah but um no it was so fun and it was also really fun to get to see a game with another fandom person I get to do that a lot more now that I live here and I've been branching out and socializing more within fandom I've met an incredible amount of people honestly in the past like even year you could say it's always such a fun experience getting to see a game with people because we have a shared language that other fans don't. And that's really fun and entertaining. And I enjoy it. I think there's a point where you have to do it like kind of coyly and like you keep it on the down low. But it's still fun to be, to be, you know, showing people the arena or showing people, I don't know, like this is more of a Pittsburgh case, but like in Seattle, it's just fun to be, you know, witnessing the objects of our hockey fandom affection and sharing that we kind of know we're processing this in a similar way that like Mm -hmm. I'm not getting when I take like my old coworkers out for a game, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you were very uh, gracious in putting up with me. Like I am still like having a little bit of trouble controlling my emotions around sports. (laughs) So we just let was a really frustrating game. And um and it feels so long ago now, but we were kind of like in the in the beginning middle of the losing streak. I tried to keep it together, but I was like pretty bummed out. But it's still like a great time. Just yeah. <laughs> you say that like I wasn't like thrashing in my seat every time something <laughs> happened on the ice. And I wasn't like, I feel really bad because I, I'm a little bit of a like linguistic prude, which you wouldn't guess on this podcast because I think I'm the one on the podcast who swears the most. But I'm very like elective when I choose to curse in terms of environment. <laughs> and for me, it's very much a situation of like, am I in public or not? And for some reason, I don't take this podcast as public. Yeah, this is our private space to have little chats about hockey. Yeah. <laughs> so you can swear like a sailor. <laughs> and unfortunately, that same tendency carries over to hockey arenas because I do not have a great control over my mouth in hockey arenas. And I'm not loud, <laughs> but like I am cursing. I am talking at the players as if they could hear me from hundreds and hundreds of feet away. I was laughing like a mad woman when the goals got pulled. When those two <laughs> yeah, disallowed goals, was, uh, yeah. I was losing my mind because I was, you know, we're all having a good time. So together we shared in our emotional turmoil and then fled the arena immediately as soon as they pulled the goalie. We're like, we got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. I was like, we got to go. <laughs> Um, yeah. So if you, if you can, dear listeners, like just imagine like Beck, like swearing at the ice while I'm having like a full on existential meltdown because my team isn't doing well. I'm silently, but you know, <laughs> you were very composed. You, you make it sound like having tears streak down your face. You were <laughs> more the composed inside, yeah. than the <laughs> average like Yenzer, you know, like you were doing great. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. I was at least behaving like a, like a human being, you know, <laughs> instead of, unlike some of the Kraken fans that we saw there, like that guy who was yelling, at, like, I thought he was going to like start a fight with that guy in the Latang jersey. He threw something at the Penguins fans. So he was trying to start something. But other than that, the Kraken fans were great. But yeah, yeah. You know, but... all things considered. Yeah. Well, okay. So we'll, we can talk more like, cause I know Kit got to see uh, Gino's thousand game ceremony with you. And so we're going to like talk more about that in future um, episodes when Kit is back uh, with us. But um, yeah, do we want to talk now about like kind of, or, you know, get transition now into the Greg Wyshynski, uh like hubbub? <laughs> I don't know what word we want to use to describe it, but um, yeah. Do you want to kind of set the scene for us? Like, what was this? I do not follow a lot of the hockey sphere like even like you Jess are a lot more informed about like the hockey world than I I basically only follow our beat reporters and even then I don't follow all of them I just like pick and choose a few 
But a well-known member of hockey media tweeted out a question wondering why female viewership has increased so much, according to like cable ratings or something along those lines. And he got a reply in which someone said, it's because of fandom girls. The verbiage used was AO3 people. The media person in question was like, well, it's because of the U23 hotties and like Roman Yossi, which cracked me up because I don't really think of Roman Yossi as being one I of- never think of Roman Yossi. Yeah. I just ever. Yeah. <laughs> in my life. <laughs> well, so that's the thing is like Roman Yossi was like the hot guy from like maybe five or six years ago. But I'm like, how are you not talking about like Trevor Zagros right now? Or like, I don't know, like Noel Pat. Yeah, the twinks, you know, you gotta like, <laughs> Roman Yossi is so five years ago. <laughs> Quite literally. I'm like, mm, you're behind the times. You were evidently not following the AO3 girlies on Twitter, because then you would know who the hockey players du jour are. And, you know, it's not Roman Yossi, but I digress. It created kind of a tweet storm about people getting angry at the implication. Yeah, that as you can imagine. <laughs> You've ever been angry on at the implication that women only watch hockey for hot guys. And, you know, it delegitimizes our presence in the sport and our fandom in the sport. And it's kind of, it fits very well into our general malaise, I might say, of Twitter fandom and how we interact on Twitter and how much the fourth wall has died on Twitter and kind of what that means for our more Tumblr-based fandom. Yeah. And I think I think it's worth mentioning, too, that I think the Greg Wyshynski tweet is like, if you just actually read the tweet, it's like quite a bit less offensive than um, was it uh, was it biz? So he tweeted something like before that a while back, maybe about like, you know, women only watch it for Tyler Sagan or whatever, you know, which again, that is so five years ago. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm very fond of Tyler Sagan. But yeah, again, a little dated as a reference point. But so I think some of the anger from Greg Krasinski is like people are already like kind of worked up about the much more blatantly like sort of misogynistic or dismissive or whatever um, tweets from, you know, like I think maybe a week or two earlier. I'm not sure on the dates. But I know like so I know we're kind of I think we have kind of similar takes on like that kind of fourth wall issue. Like, do we want to talk a little bit about the question of do we think it's true (laughs) that women are only into it because of the hot guys or whatever. Obviously, that's our super reductive framing. But right. do you want to like actually dig into like the kind of explanation that's been offered and like what we think about it? Yeah. And I, I will say that I do think this is a conversation I never want to have with a man like ever. Yeah. Yeah. This is an in-group conversation, I feel right. like. You know, like this is, yeah, <laughs> our private chat <laughs> that we're having. I will always say that like this is not a conversation I want to have with these media members. This is for them to say that kind of stuff is inappropriate just because of the social capital they hold in this space. And like not only by virtue of being men, but by virtue of being prominent media figures, mm-hmm. you know, so they have different responsibilities than we do. And moreover, they don't exist in the space like we do just by virtue of being guys. But I do feel complicated if we're talking about it as an in-group issue, because Every time this this happens, the immediate pushback is like, how dare you? That's incredibly sexist, which it is. And, you know, it's the argument that how dare you say we only watch hockey because of hot guys? That's misogynistic. That's sexist. And that's reductive of our space in fandom, which I fully completely agree with. Like, I don't want Mm -hmm. to make it sound like I don't. But I also feel like it's swinging the pendulum really hard in the other direction And I fully get why. Because I do not want to look at any of these professional media people in the eye and tell them, yeah, I think that hockey player is really hot. That's mortifying and embarrassing. They don't need to know that. But I do think that we, when we defend ourselves in these situations, the only way to legitimately defend ourselves against these sexist attacks are to completely like cut off any vestiges of like attraction that might be felt towards these hockey players right like we have to be these sexless uninterested fans in order to be seen as legitimate it's always really interesting for me to see because i purposely try to avoid getting myself into a situation where i have to talk with a media guy like that but as again as an outsider just observing this happening I'm, i'm always thinking a little bit like when we're saying oh well how dare you say i'm attracted to that guy you know that's that's not true. I'm always like, mm. but a lot of women are. 
And like, yeah, that's yeah. what did get them into the fandom in the first place. And I think the sticking point is like, that's not why they stay. If they right. just wanted to look at hot guys, they would not be watching them zoom around the ice completely covered head to toe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Unless we were like Victorians, you know, I feel like it's like, a, you know, <laughs> the, the thrilling sight of like a, a flash of ankle. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like you see a sliver of like Sidney Crosby's neck and it's like, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, I lose it. I mean, I just, you know, so <laughs> Greg's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it it totally makes sense. Like you said, it totally makes sense that the pendulum swings like really hard in the opposite direction. I think what just bothers me is that like it seems like in those in especially in the really reductive forms of that Twitter discussion or discourse or whatever, it's like we cede the ability to set the terms to the men who already are like dismissive towards us, right? So it's like we have to prove ourselves by their standards and their standards are like a, a you know, like what they think of as like a more intellectual or like a more rational attachment, you know, that's not based in like sexual attraction or whatever. I mean, it's understandable, but like I just feel like the if you are part of like a historically marginalized group, like you pretty much will never win by like matching yourself to the terms of the other, you know, the kind of like main group or whatever. It is totally understandable why we have that impulse to um, like defend our fanish practices by saying like, actually, I'm like really deeply interested in like the rules of the game or like I'm I'm actually passionate about analytics. That's what I'm here for or whatever. You know, it doesn't feel like honest to what drives a lot of transformative fandom attachment, right? I would use the word attachment, I think, to describe it. It's not just like attraction. Um, I think attraction is like subsumed within that umbrella of attachment, but it's emotional attachment, emotional investment in the narratives or in the player's stories or experiences, um, which is cultivated through fic, right? And then I would say like attraction to somebody you find caught or whatever is part of that like attachment or that emotional attachment, if that makes sense. That's a fabulous way of looking at it. And I also think it really puts into clear terms how it is not at all different from what men do. Oh, yeah, yeah. They too are forming deep emotional attachments to these guys. No one cares about sports except for the storytelling. And like we may be engaging in that storytelling in very different ways, but guys are still doing it too. Just because we're doing it in a slightly different way, like you said, we don't have to cede to their terms just because what we are doing is exactly what they are doing in very slightly different ways. And I, yeah, I just, it's kind of interesting, like, and I think it just goes back to what we've talked about before, um, especially like thinking about around Gino and stuff like that. Like, it just seems like for male sports fans, there is like all of this pressure to like disavow the emotional parts of this, but uh, parts of the attachment to the sport or investment in the sport or whatever, right? Like that you, I mean, not necessarily that you want to be like more intellectual, because I wouldn't say that they would frame it that way, but that you don't want to be like emotionally attached to something. So like all the people who are like, oh, we got to like sell Gino to the glue factory, you know, like those people are like, we got to be totally unemotional about like these decisions we make for our team, like blah, blah, blah. It's all about winning. Like this is where Kit would make a joke about men looking at other men gaily at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can just fill in. We can almost hear their voice. Yeah. <laughs> we can patch in. Yeah. yeah. We'll just ask it for like a little recording, a little snippet recording. That Is we it not gay there. for yeah. you as a man to think about other men? Yeah. Yeah. The contract situation of other men. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's actually a direct quote from the last, uh, from our, our Gino episodes, but and this is obviously oversimplifying it, but it comes down to that aversion to emotional attachment, which obviously can encompass not romantic because you're not in a romance with them, but well, you know, kind of emotionally, <laughs> but um, but like sexual attraction as well or just physical attraction. And I think the way you're putting it is a much better way to contextualize it for people like you and I who do not date men in our real lives. It's like whatever we're doing with the hockey players is not what these straight men think that women fans are doing to hockey players, you know? And I'm not saying that to say that straight female transformative fans are doing that either. You know, like that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> I have straight friends, believe it or not. And, you know, the way, <laughs> the way that they engage in fandom is just as complex as what I do. Yeah, I assume that that's because like men and obviously we're speaking in like such broad generalizations and these are really complicated like topics with lots of, you know, people are not like monoliths, so, like men are not like a monolith. But like I think that often like the dismissive like dismissiveness of attraction is like men assuming that women um like that women's objectification of men is the same as their objectification of women. And by that I mean like that I think that 
that when they think of us watching it for the hot guys, they're not thinking about, like you said, like that kind of emotional investment in the character, in the story. They think that we're doing like what what they do when they look at like porn or something or like a hot girl, like a pinup girl in a poster or something. They fully cannot imagine the rich, complicated emotional backgrounds, the emotional landscapes we are creating whole cloth of absolutely (laughs) nothing is deeply not on their radar. Yeah. And I I really think that that kind of explains like part of it is like, or, you know, that kind of like is a a crucial difference is that like, I 100% think that what we are doing is like, I'm going to say objectifying, but I don't mean it in like a negative way. Like, it's kind of like, you know, like a sexualizing of the characters, obviously, right? Like we're writing about them. We're often writing and reading about them in like erotic situations. And that's a big part of the emotional investment for a lot of people. But I think it's so different from the really kind of flat fetishizing of like somebody's body without an interest. And the way in which women watch hockey is very different than the way in which men watch Olympic beach volleyball. Exactly. That is a perfect way of, of putting it. And who knows? Like maybe there are men out there who are thinking about the emotional relationships between the women on that team as they're looking hot in the sand or whatever. But I can only hope. But you know, yeah, yeah. We hope, we hope, and we hope that they'll one day find their way to AO3 with the rest of us. And like I do think like if Sidney Crosby, if I did not find him to be like aesthetically pleasing to look at, it would be I probably wouldn't have kind of latched on to him as somebody I was really interested in. I feel like that's like sometimes the doorway to like getting into a character or whatever. But then obviously, like, I wouldn't stay for that. It's not like I'm going to turn it on the TV, like, just to watch, like, Sidney Crosby. Like you said, just to watch him in full gear, like, covered from head to toe, <laughs> like, skating around the ice, like, looking so grim, like, his mustache quivering. Maybe I would. I don't know. But I don't think that I would do that. I think that it's, like, that's, like, kind of the window into it or, like, the gateway into it. Oh, that person is, like, kind of attractive. Let me, like, read more about them or whatever. But I think, like, the mistake is to assume that, like, that's where it ends, right? Right. The mistake is to assume that women become and remain hockey fans because of aesthetic attractions to players. Right. right. And uh, it's so deeply misguided and shallow. Now we're going to kind of transition to something that's like a, like a subset of this, right? Or like a, um, a subset of that tweet conversation. So do you want to kind of, again, like kind of set the scene for, for what that part of the conversation this is kind of us talking about the lack of the fourth wall on Twitter specifically and also Twitter fandom and how it is in semi-crisis, maybe an imagined crisis mm-hmm. because of Twitter's status as a platform and how that might impact our home base, which is Tumblr. Yeah. And before we like go into this, so I, I'm sure people like know this already, but like what is our definition of like the fourth wall? Like what do we – How do we define that? So traditionally, I think it was mostly the idea that like you do not engage with like actors and showrunners for like TV shows that you like. When you delve into RPF, I think it gets more complicated, especially with situations like the one we're in now where it's a sports team that has a social media team that is looking for engagement online and has, you know, beat reporters who are writing articles about these players online. But to me, it's very much any kind of blending or enmeshing of people who are professionally part of hockey teams and hockey operations and hockey media and then transformative fans. And how for me, I deeply want to keep those two groups as far apart as humanly possible. Yeah, and how that seems increasingly yeah. impossible, specifically because of Twitter. Yeah. And I would say, too, like, I would say that my kind of historically, my understanding of the fourth wall or my definition of the fourth wall has been like much broader than that. And it's basically like, transformative fans and like people just in the wild who aren't versed in transformative fan cultures, like should not really interact, right? Or like we should not bring the things that we're making and doing to the attention of that broader audience. But I, I think you're right that it like is it has the specific dimension of like interacting with the creators or with the people who are actually involved in the the fandom. I do like your definition of it though, because that is something I have been thinking about a lot more. Um just being on algorithmically generated sites like TikTok where I do see fandom content crop up and how it can crop up for quite genuinely anyone. 
and how there's kind of been some more modern strife about people not knowing fandom culture, fandom terms, whatever, because their introductions to fandoms are not because they kind of like trip and fall into it because of their own curiosity, but rather that an algorithm gives it to them and they kind of get thrown into the world with perhaps like part of me wants to say less curiosity, but it's like less of their own actions. The way I got into fandom was like accidentally finding fan fiction one day because I was like Googling pictures of like the Twilight movies or something. I was like clicking and getting into rabbit holes and like finding stuff. Whereas I feel like it's very easy to get things thrown in front of you now. And we're kind of seeing how younger Gen Z and perhaps even Gen Alpha are reacting to- Oh my God, is there another generation beyond them? (laughs) I didn't know there was a term for it yet. Yeah, they're already Gen Alphas. Are they more powerful than all other previous generations? Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, the danger is what what comes after them? Generation Omega, and then do we do we get ABO in real life? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what happens. <laughs> you know, it's just the, kind of the complications of how people see fandom and how gated fandom is. Because yeah, what, I, yeah. what grinds my gears is this is a departure from Twitter, but like. TikTok knows I like hockey and it doesn't feed me too much hockey content because I don't super like the kind of hockey content that is on TikTok. It's not to my taste, but it has found out that it loves showing me TikToks where people talk about how the whole like fandom mythos of, oh, you know, this fic I really like, you know, I went to go look at the author's profile and I found out that all they wrote was men's hockey rpf fix and it's like a whole genre of like micro joke (laughs) on tiktok where people are like oh my god all those fan fictions that you know could have been written but no the authors will all just end up men's hockey rpf and i feel so seen by it (laughs) and i'm like it's weird to be seeing other people observing your community when they're not part of it it's kind of just a little jokey joke because these tiktoks are getting like maybe five thousand likes like that's nothing in terms of like tiktok exposure but seeing so like that's kind of fun and lighthearted and like i get a little squicked out but like it's fine where i really start getting nervous is when we start tweeting at media figures about mm-hmm. fan fiction like mm-hmm. as we know tyler sagan has in fact read and seen fic about himself yeah and i think i think too what you're saying about like people encountering things because of like algorithmic like whatever instead of like their own seeking it out like to me that's why like my older definition of the fourth wall like doesn't really apply anymore because often you can't help the way that your material is circulating if you're if you're um on one of these like algorithm driven platforms right so you might create something that's for one audience like for a transformative fandom only audience but it is probably going to circulate or you know chances are good that it's going to circulate outside of that audience and then you get like the context collapse where it's like people with really different or really different audiences, right, with really different norms and really different understandings of the fanish activity are encountering that just with no context, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, so I think, like, my definition of the fourth wall is, like, historically what, like, the kind of fandom, like, you know, that separation has been. But but now we're kind of in a situation where the design of the platforms themselves are, like, making it impossible to maintain that kind of fourth wall. I will say that people encountering fanish content and not having appropriate context for it and perhaps not being open to it is something that has been deeply on my mind just because of the engagement I'm seeing on Twitter. And that makes it sound like I'm like popping off on Twitter and I am deeply not. I have like 300 followers on Twitter, which is like mincemeat. I get nervous now whenever like any of my tweets gets like above like 20 likes. And it's not like a common thing, but I've had a couple tweets like get up to like the couple hundreds and I get so freaking nervous when that happens. Like I've deleted tweets before because of it because I'm like, what if someone clicks on my profile and sees me like replying to someone RPFE? Like I'm not too Mm -hmm. crazy about how much RPF I put on Twitter. I'm so conscious of the fact that Twitter has a different audience than Tumblr does. And I get really nervous whenever I see anything getting engagement on there yeah. Um. beyond like my knowable circle just because I feel like it's so easy for people who do not have the context to like read my situation properly to come in and like immediately judge me for it. And I really want to avoid that at all costs. 
And I feel the same way. Like, I think I I got into Twitter originally to follow like some of the beat writers and to just like kind of like get game updates or stuff like that. But I feel like I too have been like deeply, deeply uneasy about posting anything RPF-y because I don't know, like I don't want people to to like see that or to have it like circulate outside of my control, like you're saying, like to go to go viral, even on like the tiniest scale of like it breaking containment and like <laughs> reaching non-RPF fans. But then also it's just like uncomfortable to think like, I, I think the other thing is like coming from One Direction fandom where there was such a really toxic culture of conspiracy thinking around like the main pairing, right? And like all these attempts to like kind of forcibly out people who may or may not identify as queer, like, well, in one case, definitely didn't identify as queer. And like, I think that too, like on Twitter, it's like, I don't have the the space and the context that I do on Tumblr to explain like, what I'm saying is like a joke, right? Or like, it's like fiction, or I don't actually think that Sidney Crosby is gay. I don't actually think that he's in a secret relationship with Gino. And I feel like Wendy has just made me extremely, extremely wary of Twitter as like a place for doing any kind of shippy talk or like thick conversations or whatever, because people don't have that context. And I don't want, I wouldn't ever want people to think that I was doing that in like a serious way. It, I'm doing it in a serious way and that I'm like care about it a lot, but not serious as in like, I don't think it's real. That's fascinating to me because it's deeply not the angle I approach it with or like that's not the fear I have. Mostly because I don't think I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm sorely mistaken. I hope not. Uh, I don't think that people think I think that Sid and Gino are really in a relationship. Again, I might be wrong, but for me, it's my fear is very much less about being the tin hatty type, just because we have been mercifully, largely void of tin hatty behavior and hockey RPF, but more so that I deeply hate the thought of being perceived as like a freak within this fanish space. That's hard to do when we're kind of into related but distinct cultures. And especially, you know, again, being local, and I don't bring that up to be, you know, high and mighty about it, but just rather that I feel like I have a very distinct desire to maintain a fandom, a fandom ability to be engaging with normie fans, as I like to call them, and fandom people. If I feel like I am ostracized by like the standard hockey goer, you know, in the city, that really hurts my ability to like enjoy fandom. And, you know, that's th- that doesn't feel good. Again, being someone who's like, this is my home and I really want to avoid at all costs feeling like I don't belong here yeah, or or that I'm like doing it wrong or being weird or creepy or strange, which are things that people would reasonably think if they have never encountered RPF before. Yeah. And I think too, just like going back to the Greg Wyshynski, like to the reply to the tweet. So the the tweet reply that mentions AO3 is like actually very positive about, you know, it's like kind of like celebratory of like the role of fan fiction and fandom in bringing fan edits specifically, like in bringing people into hockey fandom um, or to mainstream hockey viewership. Right. And I think like that's good. Like I think that we've definitely seen like a kind of, I mean, a massive destigmatizing of fic a huge desigmatize. You know, it's hard to like even like wrap my head around it sometimes, like how open people are about the fact that they read and write fanfic now compared to like when I was like a teenager and in college. But I think that's a good change or cultural change. But I do think that like it kind of like that there are like really persuasive, to me, really persuasive and compelling arguments for like wanting to keep that culture to ourselves, right? And like not exposing it to a wider public. And that that can also be a way of like being proud of fan fiction or being proud of the culture that we've created. I don't know. Like, I don't really understand like the need to have it be acknowledged by public figures or by beat writers or whatever, like for it to be legitimate. And I wonder if some of that is driven by this idea that like breaking down like the shame around fan fiction and the shame around this activity that we're doing is like bringing it into the public. And I don't agree with that, you know, or I don't I don't love that as like a strategy. I say I agree with you, and I especially think in our case with RPF, it's so much more dicey than it is with, like, fictional media. Right. And I even with fictional media, though, I don't, like, I'm never going to admit to someone, like, in my normal life that I'm, like, writing or reading fan fiction. That's just deeply something I'm very uninterested in for a multitude of reasons. 
I don't think people should be ashamed of it. But I also really don't feel the need to introduce people outside of that culture into like its huge role in my life. But like at the same time, it is it is an in culture, it is an in group, and we have common vernacular, we have like shared cultural experiences. If Gontarov is a sign <laughs> of anything, yeah, yeah, and you know, it's something I really deeply kind of enjoy and maybe part of that is like a gatekeeper instinct of just being like this is like a special thing that I get to be part of and the more mainstream it becomes the more people who find out about it the less like counterculture it is and this is really the only counterculture I've been a part of yeah so like part of it is a little selfish and intent but also you know I think maybe this is like the last vestiges of anonymous internet because I could argue that I am helping de-anonymize the internet fandom space too because like i've met up with so many other pens fans that i've met through like tumblr at this point like i feel like i can like go to random games now and there's like a shot i might run into someone i know from like hockey twitter or hockey tumblr but at the same time i do appreciate that this is a space where i don't have to show my face and i don't have to be if i didn't want to like a public persona and with the fact that it is being destigmatized and people are being really really willing to you know put names and faces to their fandom presences to be really open with it also with people in their personal lives which is their own choice and i deeply support whatever they wish to do it does kind of make it a situation where it is not a space where you're expected to be anonymous anymore and i think that has really interesting implications just given fan fiction's history where like yeah. Being anonymous used to be like, this is how I'm not going to get sued by Anne Rice, you know? Yeah. And that's that's interesting too, because I feel like I'm I, in my own life, I'm pretty open with people about that fandom is a huge part of my life and identity, you know, with friends, like even to some extent with family and that I write fic and that that's part of like what I, you know, what I do. And that's partly because that was like a part of my doctoral research was about fan cultures and fan reading practices. And so that like was something I had to get comfortable talking to like faculty about or talking to other people or presenting on at conferences or stuff like that. So I think that's part of it is like, I'm I'm really comfortable with that. But I think it's also partly like the reason I'm more comfortable with that than with like tweeting at Greg Wyshynski is because in those conversations, I'm having conversations with people that I already have a relationship with. And I'm, I have the space to give context and to give like an understanding of what fan cultures are, what fan practices do, what the kind of boundaries are, et cetera. Whereas like when you're just like tweeting it like at Greg Wyshynski, you don't have that. You can't give that context. You don't have any control. You don't have a pre-established relationship that helps them interpret or understand like the fanish practices that you're engaged in. And I think I would use the language of like, I don't know if protection is the right word, but instead of like gatekeep, right? Because I think gatekeep has all these negative like connotations of we want to like shut people out or be like exclusive. But to me, it's more about like thinking about how you protect the relationships within fandom, how you protect what is special about fan cultures, what is different about fan cultures than other corners of the internet. And I think sometimes when people are doing that, like really intentional breaking of the fourth wall on Twitter or on TikTok or whatever, or where you're sending stuff right to the people, it's like you're not really thinking about like your fellow fans and like about the different comfort levels that they might have with like that public exposure. And you're not like trying to like, you're not like kind of putting like the health of the community ahead of like your desire to have it be recognized by, uh, you know, I don't know. Which we're not saying that specific tweeter is. Yeah, obviously, obviously rather. It's just like the phenomenon of like really wanting people with big platforms to acknowledge and know about fan culture. Right. Which again, I do kind of wonder if people who are very willing to bring up fan works to people out on the other side of the fourth wall, I wonder how many of them are creators of fan works. Yeah, yeah. Are they creators or are they consumers? Which I don't mean to, again, discount. Disc- There's so many like caveats we're adding into this episode. Right, I'm right. So sorry. Yeah, yeah. But we deeply don't want to disrespect anyone in the fandom space. But like, if you're a consumer of fan content and not a creator, you know, you have a different relationship with the content, with the fandom space, and with the objects of fandom. Not in a worse way, just a different way, because you're not creating fan works. If you do create fan works, I think that kind of might make you more resistant to people bringing it up. I mean, yeah. I don't want to speak for yeah. everyone. I don't know. It's, 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 it sounds like such a nightmare scenario of introducing creative works to people who they were not intended for 
Like if you're Mm -hmm. writing, I think in most cases people are writing in community. Either they're writing for themselves, their friends, or their fellow fandom members. And taking the works outside of that context and then displaying them to, you know, people who do not have the cultural knowledge to be able to like want to read them or to appreciate them invites a lot of really upsetting feelings for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. And I wonder too if like some of it is like, you know, I know we've talked a little bit about like generational differences and platform differences. And I wonder if there's just less of like an understanding on like TikTok or Twitter, like these ones that are much more algorithm driven than Tumblr. Like if you don't learn those like kind of older cultural norms of fandom, and not to say again, like that everyone has the same norms, like even like throughout fandom's long history, people have had really different ideas about where the lines should be drawn, right? Or what privacy should look like in a fandom like environment. But I think like, I wonder if too, if like, if you're used to, if your primary learning about social media culture and about fandom culture happened on really algorithm driven sites where like you want to go viral or you want to like, um, or there's a possibility that everything might be seen by anyone. If you just like kind of are missing some of that context of like, I don't know, like that that understanding of fandom as a like a semi-private, semi-protected community or subculture. Part of me wonders if Tumblr as a microblogging site also contributed to this because like what happens when you take fan works that exist in like more locked down spaces like AO3 and talk about them on these third sites like Tumblr, which also might be in danger if we actually do get a bunch of like Twitter people fleeing to the site. Like what happens when the discussions about the fan works are not happening on the fan works sites where it used to be like forums and now it's AO3, but like, it's not just the comments, it's people going like on to Twitter or to TikTok or whatever and saying like, oh my God, I read this amazing fic and, you know, sharing it, which I see a lot of on like TikTok. For yeah. Example. Yeah. And I think, you know, okay. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. So I guess I would say I would add the kind of like, uh, like nuance that I think that there are definitely many other categories of like participation in like live journal or forum based things, right? Like there have always been like all of these, like the role of the beta or the role of the really active commentator or like, you know, or like, um, not commentator, but commenter, right? Or the people who create reckless or the people who run fast or right, you know, so there's always been these ways to do that without culturally, like without creating like fanish output, you know, like, and that's the majority of fandom, like, to be clear, like, it's a deeply important part. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, so I think that that has, has historically, like, always been part of fandom. And it's not just like, kind of the lurker or creator divide. But I think what you're getting at that I think is really interesting is like, that there's just more there's like this kind of like like the cultural category of like the the commentator or the like i don't know like the cultural critic or something like but like for fandom where it's kind of or even like the hype man like on twitter you know for fandom like you said like saying i read this amazing fic and like linking it or like trying to kind of stir up like traffic to this thing or attend positive attention for like somebody's fan cam or something like that and i think that that is like something that is only only really makes sense in the context of these newer social media platform environments, right? Like that that couldn't really have existed because of the way these older platforms were designed. Like LiveJournal or something like that, like there was no concept of virality because you had they were based in these like kind of stable static blogs. And so you could have like lots of interaction with people on the blog, but like because of the way the platforms were designed, fandom was always going to be more of a semi-private community, right? And you could stumble across it, but it was semi-private in the sense that there was no chance of that or little chance of that circulating outside of the intended audience. And if it did circulate outside of it, then that was a big deal, right? Because that's not supposed to happen. Right. And I think I think what I'm trying to get at in this conversation is they operate on the same platforms that traditional media and even the objects of our fanish affections operate on as well. And that's that's the crux of the issue. It's not what people are doing. It's just the mere fact that all that separates you and someone you might not want to know about what you're doing is a click of the mouse. Yeah. And I think I think that's so true. And I think there's a way of flipping that framing too, where it's like, we're kind of framing it as like the personal responsibility of the fan themselves to maintain those divi- like divides. And I think we both agree that there's some degree of, or there, you know, ideally there should be some degree of personal responsibility there. But I think too, like we can think about like that, that design question, right? Like the platforms are designed to facilitate certain forms of interaction and engagement and to make other forms of interaction and engagement impossible. So you can no longer have like the enthusiastic commenter, the person who's hyping up other people's works, the people who are really participating in really earnest and like like very positive fandom ways. 
you can no longer have that in that semi-private like platform of like live journal or like a locked forum or something like that because we are now kind of like forced to exist on these social media platforms where there are these algorithms that can mean that anything at any point can can break containment right perfectly put yeah it's depressing i think <laughs> like yeah i mean that's the danger of it is you know these websites their sole goal is to make profit off of their users and you know they get that profit by selling ads and keep you on the platform and how they do that is trying to connect you with people who are vaguely interested in what you're interested in and if you're tweeting about hockey it's going to connect you with other people who are tweeting about hockey but they might be tweeting about hockey in a deeply different way than you yeah are. yeah also you know like you said about personal responsibility where i think I have a tendency to focus on that too much because it feels like all that I can control. Right. But I think a lot about the hockey media and how, like, you know, they all have to know now, right? Like, they right. all, like, they can't not know, simply. But the vast majority of them are being incredibly polite and not saying anything, which I deeply appreciate, yeah. you know? Because yeah. I think... I'm guilty of this too, where it's like, it's really easy to think of these people as not being people. They're just like the little content factories who are spitting out articles that we read. But it's like, no, that's like an actual guy who lives somewhere in the city mm -hmm. who goes to every single game. And when you quote tweet him, he's going to see it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like they, they have to know a lot. And they're just being really good about not saying anything, which again, I am eternally grateful for. I've been so guilty of that in the past too, of like kind of forgetting that, you know, whatever I say in their vicinity, they're going to see. And it's very easy to forget when it's someone you're kind of familiar with, even in a fandom context. Like I knew who some of our beat writers were before I even like started following them on Twitter, just because like they would show up in like fan spaces or fan works as names. Yeah. You know? Which yeah, it has to be kind of, incredibly yeah, strange for so, them. It's so weird. Like to us, they're like these micro celebrities, or like they're um, they're characters, right? In like our kind of the dramas that we're playing out in like fiction and our headcanons and stuff. Yeah, they're like they're really micro celebrities in the sense that they're really close to us, you know. <laughs> like, and they see yeah. what we. They're not famous enough that they don't see, you know, that it gets lost in like the volume of stuff that they see. Right. And like that has to be a weird situation for them too. Like I have walked past a bunch of the media members before casually, like be it like, you know, at arenas, at practice yeah. rings, wherever. Like, you know, I, I've seen them out and about in daily life. They're just people doing jobs to make money, to have a living. And, you know, to, for us to be engaging with them on that level has also, has to be very weird for them. But I'm very grateful that a lot of them are being, again, really polite about it yeah. and kind yeah. of maintain the veneer of it just because you know i'm like we're not like blameless we're like oh my god the context is collapsing and like everything is dire and you know everyone knows about us and it's like half of that is because we're on twitter being loud you know which of of, of which i am not exempt at all so it's it's a complicated sticky situation that is like you said largely the fault of the platforms that we are on by nature. Yeah. And I, I think like one of the things that I appreciate about Tumblr is that it's obviously still like a kind of like not algorithm driven, obviously, but like engagement driven, like, you know, there, I have a lot of problems with Tumblr, but I think like over the years, I've become increasingly grateful to Tumblr for like, especially after a lot of people left for Twitter and especially after like people started thinking of the website as like defunct, right? I think it's become like sort of a haven for, again, that sort of semi-protected community, right? Like that kind of model of a slightly older form of fandom culture where we all know what we're doing. We all have the context, or we mostly have, not all, we have like that kind of context for understanding like that we're, do we're participating in fanish activity and we're creating fictions and stuff. And we are also blessed by the fact that like most of the media people aren't presumably on tumblr or like browsing their you know dashboard all the time like looking at stuff about we found out about Sidney crosby's twitter burner account because of a media member what's the day when we find out about Sidney crosby's burner tumblr account it's been on tumblr all this time he's looking this at the whole gift time. yeah <laughs> he's um. seeing he's seen us critique his facial hair it's all over I think that's one of my fears about like if twitter does go down in flames which unclear if that's actually going to happen or not 
if that happens and people do like choose to make the transition to Tumblr, especially more public figures like making the transition to Tumblr, that's just something I really worry about because like I really value that like weird little community of and like you said, like Gontrav is like a perfect example of like that it's like Tumblr is like the home of a subculture, right? <laughs> it's like right. and it's like everyone kind of knows or most people there like know the rules or understand like are playing by similar rules, if not the same ones. And I think I just worry about like the possibility of like an influx of sort of Twitter refugees bringing in a different set of norms and expectations and then like encountering stuff that was not meant for them to see. I don't know. I don't know where we'll go then if that happens, but we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. I will say I, I'm very skeptical that that will happen, but I also feel like I don't understand the cultural context for it because I swear I saw like maybe two people leave Tumblr during like the whole mass exodus thing Mm -hmm. like i saw a lot of hubbub about it and people like reblogging like huge posts full of like resources and suggestions and like lots of hand wringing and i swear to god my dashboard did not change at all i didn't know anyone who left yeah i feel like i knew quite a few people who are like i feel like i just like I also think around that time I got better at curating my dashboard. So it might be like kind of a selection effect, you know, like. But but you're not alone. A lot of people like I've been so weirded out when, again, I see like on TikTok people talking about like the death of Tumblr, you know, Tumblr banned porn and everyone left. And I'm like, did they? Yeah, I don't. Like what Tumblr were you guys on? The Tumblr I was on stayed basically the same. I didn't see anyone leave. And I was like, what were you guys using Tumblr for? (laughs) The porn was the reason you left. Kind of a question. I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just riffing. It's okay. (laughs) But, you know, it's just I'm skeptical that people are going to leave Twitter for Tumblr because in my limited experience, that seems to be shared by no one. (laughs) I didn't see any appreciable change when that happened. And I think maybe fortunately in our case, the cultural norms of sites are very easy to get ingrained in. And I think people like staying where they are. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I I don't think the Twitter users want to go to Tumblr. Yeah, I think that is if Twitter like remains even like semi-functional, I think people will stay on Twitter because it's like habitual. That's their social media culture. Yeah, I would say like just kind of anecdotally, I think the thing that changed for me when there was like a kind of mass exodus, which I don't think was just the porn man. I think people had already started shifting to Twitter and then that was kind of like maybe a big kick through the door for some people. But I think like the thing that I saw was like a massive decrease in like discourse, right? Like kind of the like flame war, like posting, like all the angry people went to Twitter (laughs) and it was the best thing ever. And that's why I'm afraid, you know, that's why I'm afraid of them coming back because like I think that like Tumblr has just become like a much more chill place. Like I hesitate to say that, but like, and I think that's partly because there's a little bit more of that shared shared context or shared culture, right? Like I think sometimes like in in One Direction fandom, like the wars would be between or like, you know, these kind of like awful discourse flame wars or whatever would be between like a blog that was like basically what I think of now as like a Twitter fan, like somebody who's not really involved in transformative fandom and is like not really interested in that, right? But is like just was interested in like Harry Styles or whatever, right? A conflict between them and like somebody who was like a shipper, right? And so and like this kind of so obviously those are two people who are bringing really different cultural frameworks you know, to bear in that conversation and have really different norms. And I think like there was kind of like a separating out where I feel like a lot of the people left on Tumblr are like that kind of transformative fandom or like at least comfortable enough with it to not have that be like a flashpoint for discourse. Yes. And I also think what I really like about Tumblr is that it's so much better for anything resembling like archival presence. Twitter is so temporary and so short-lived you know like you you can run scripts on your account to like delete your old tweets and like automatically and stuff like it's a very temporary feeling platform to me that's a really dangerous route to go down for fandom specifically Mm -hmm. just because something i like to think about a lot is how there's going to be a lot of dead zones of the internet and there already are but like so much of the early internet is unusable and unreachable to us because no one thought it was important to save. And like we've gotten a little bit better with like the Wayback Machine and like the Internet Archive. Twitter seems like the perfect breeding ground for temporary things. And that's always really sad to me because I've always been really interested in like fandom as an object of study and fandom as an yeah, object of something yeah. to look at. Because it, like like you said, it's a shared culture that we've participated in for like a decade or more. 
And whenever I see parts of it get lost, I get really sad just because that's another part of our shared like cultural history that we use and build off of. And like it helps explain our presence and why we are the way that we are today. And Twitter is so, 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 so bad for that. It's Mm -hmm. great for other things. It's great for me like following along with like the live blog of the game and reading the updates and like seeing the news articles. But when it comes to like the fandom practices that I want to endure, it's not good. So that's why to me, Tumblr is always going to eke out, even though Twitter is fantastic for other reasons. I hope Tumblr never gets like cannibalized by a large group of people coming in and changing things around just because it's so good for that specific purpose of like showing some kind of continuity to our fan space. And I think too, like that kind of to me circles back to something we were talking about with like kind of maybe younger fans who have come of age on algorithm driven sites like Tumblr or sorry, not Tumblr, um, Twitter, that there's kind of like a gap. You know, like if you think about like how culture is transmitted, right? It's like you absorb it. Like sometimes you're explicitly taught it by like somebody who's been around in the culture longer than you, but often you just sort of absorb it by being in that space and seeing how people operate and how people act and like learning about like kind of the history of that space and and so on and the history of that subculture and and learning like its language. Like with, again with Gontrov, right? Like learning the language of fandom memes and like the way that people talk about like headcanons and stuff like that, right? The way that like even the way that people discourse about fandom stuff, like you learn all those forms, you learn that language and stuff, and you learn those norms of how you conduct yourself in a space and what people, what is kind of socially permissible and what people frown on. In a really ephemeral site like Twitter, that learning is lost, right? Like you don't really have like a space where you can go and read through a ton of stuff or like you have the space where it's like everything is really short, everything is really brief, everything is really temporary. And also that it's not just a fandom space, right? That it's like a shared space with all these other people who have really different norms and and whatever. And I just think that like there's can be like kind of a, a disruption in the way that cultural norms are passed down if you don't have like a that kind of archival function or like that ability, that kind of subculture, gated subculture or whatever. And I think that that like accounts in my mind, and this might be like a generalization in my mind that like accounts for a lot of the um, fourth wall issues that we're talking about is like people just don't really have that understanding or didn't grow up in a fandom culture that like kind of like just like tacitly discouraged that kind of engagement with like the creators or whatever right and like again there's an even stranger like layer of complications on the sports rpf end because it's not even like we're going to Sidney crosby himself and being like hi let me show you like this erotic fan art someone drew, which people have done <laughs> just, to like actors in the past. Like, just we're imagining not doing it to him. We're yeah. doing it to some random third person who yeah. is like deeply yeah. involved. But like it's it's a I don't know, it's a very interesting pickle to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also think that on the topic of algorithmically drawn fandoms and how that introduces people to fandom. I think it also can sometimes strip away some of the work you have to do. And I don't mean to sound like back in my day, I had to go digging through dead forums to find what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, Is obviously like the- we're both doing a lot of back in my day, but you know, right. it's like part of it. Like we've been in fandom a long time and yeah, yeah. And it's been a different, yeah. Right. And like, it's also not done out of like a spiteful way or like a way to keep people away. It's that I feel like I'm really grateful I had the experience I did and I wish mm-hmm young people today could get that too yeah you know and like so when it comes to me having to like dig deeper to find fandom stuff I felt like it kind of was like a like a frog boiling in a pot situation where I was able to kind of turn the heat up on myself by continuing to like dig deeper and like consenting to like digging deeper and finding more and like getting deeper into like the fandom lore and like fandom culture and everything that that entailed whereas for an algorithmically drawn website like tiktok it could just throw something in front of you that perhaps in the past you might have had to work a little bit harder to get towards which again is not universally true there were plenty of like horrible jump scares on the old internet (laughs) but it's like how easily people can get kink discussions on TikTok or like discussions about the subgenre of romance books that are like monster fucking books. 
you know, how easily someone could stumble onto that just by scrolling on TikTok and like not really having to kind of like worm your way through adult spaces online feels dangerous in a lot of ways, not only for young people and their minds, which are not necessarily ready for that. And, you know, I I do not envy the role that parents have to play in their kids' lives these days by monitoring their online usage, which is deeply necessary, but also seems almost impossible to do. So kudos to anyone dealing with that. But also um, how that can harm fandom spaces because it means young people, or not just young people, people who are not ready or willing to see certain kinds of content can be confronted with that content Mm -hmm. that they did not want to see. And then they get really, really angry and scared and upset, which are all like, that's okay to feel that way. But it depends on how they react to that. And that might be part of like the whole Puritanism issue we see today, which luckily isn't super in this fandom, but you see it in lots of other corners of just people being really upset with certain kinds of explicit content. And I think it's because a lot of people no longer have as much control as they did before over what they see and when they see it. That is such an interesting, like, I I don't think I'd thought about it in those terms before, but that's such an interesting, like, yeah, I think it's definitely like they don't have control over when and how they encounter that, like, more um, explicit or more disturbing to them or whatever, or just more, like, off the beaten path, like, content. And I think it's it's like kind of a consent thing too. If you're on Twitter, or you're on TikTok or whatever, like you don't have the option to like kind of consent to what you're about to see, right? Like it's just put in front of you, like you said. For example, like I think when I started, when I first encountered ABO, I was really squicked out by it. Like I really, really did not like it. I didn't like the biology parts. I didn't like the gender politics. And when I saw it, I was like, oh no, that's not for me, right? And obviously like I have, you know, completely come around on ABO. But I think that's because like I had that ability to be like, I'm going to like kind of like by degrees explore like the parts of this that I'm interested in. I have the ability to step back from content that is like squicking me out in some way. And I think you're so right that you just don't have any control over that on like Twitter or whatever, right? Like you get, you will see people making like really like obscene, like not jokes or whatever about like Sidney Crosby or whatever, you know, and if you're just like, if you're like a younger person or you're new to fandom or you just have like different like kind of norms around what you're the content that you're okay with, I can see how that would like really trigger like a reaction of strong anger or like disgust or or whatever that would then drive that like purity culture, like thinking, you know. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. What's tragic about it is like no one is in the wrong in this situation. Like yeah, I want to yeah. have my fun in jokes and I want to have my like stupid discourse and I want to have my like strange erotica stories that I want to read and I want to have a good time doing that. And the people who don't want any part of that should also be able to not have any part of that. But again, it's the issue of the platforms that we're on and how they want to make money by stitching us together when mutually we don't want that. Yeah, and they and they like are taking away your ability to curate your own space in a way that feels right to you, right? Or that like yeah, and I think it's like again, like you said, like it's kind of like a flipping of that like I'm not trying to say like oh, people shouldn't post like explicit jokes about ABO cuz like they're they're funny as hell, you know? Like I think it's hilarious to read some of this content. Like <laughs> It's like I like laugh out loud like it's so funny. And I'm not saying like they should stop posting. I'm just saying like it really fucking sucks that like we don't have platforms that are designed with like the actual like needs of users or like even like the kind of like well-being of users, right? The ability of users to have some autonomy over like the stuff that enters their, you know, like online sphere. And it sucks that we don't get to have, it sucks that the people who are creating that don't get to have like the semi-privacy of like I'm making an in-joke to a group of people who are on board with this and who are interested in this, right? And who are going to find this hilarious. And I don't want to have other people like seeing that and like, you know, quote tweeting it or like spreading it around in like ways that are demeaning to me or disparaging of me. Yeah, it just it sucks for everybody involved to not have that kind of agency over our, our spaces. Right. And unfortunately, I have no solutions for it. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, like, we are fully at the mercy of the platforms that we're on. And all we can do is choose which platforms we want to use. And unfortunately, sometimes that choice is, doesn't even feel like fully ours. You know, again, if, if Twitter keeps like degrading, 
you know, who knows what, like, if, you know, if it does actually become unusable, which I doubt, but it's possible, you know, then that choice of which platform they want to be on, it gets taken out of more people's hands. Right, right. So. Kind of a, a bleak note to end on, but I think, I mean, this is super interesting to me to, like, discuss this with you. I know. But- I just, that's, like, the joy of, again, like, fandom, and because we're, like, these absolute nerds who just really care about this subculture that we're a part of it's a really interesting way to kind of talk about how we see things changing and for the good the bad and the ugly all the way through and you know it's i don't know i i'm kind of an eternal optimist and i think things are always going to be okay and you know even though i might have like some dubious fears about certain parts of the direction of fandom or like certain platforms or whatever. I feel very fortunate to have had the experience that I have had so far and it still remains largely a deeply pleasurable and enjoyable experience. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agreed. The fact that we do navigate such a male dominated fan space with the kind of deftness we do and we are able to carve out spaces that do remains relatively isolated is really great and you know it's kind of like you know life finds a way like you know (laughs) fandom finds a way to you know exist in the little corners where it is safe and happy and enjoyable for us to do so and i think we've done we've done so admirably on basically every site that people have touched and there's always going to be some corner that you know you can carve out and make your own and, you know, maybe you have a chance of encountering someone who doesn't want what you're selling, but a lot of us are kind of at a at a cultural point where we can just go, okay, loser, go away. Yeah. And they do, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not doom and gloom, but it is as a culture, as all cultures are constantly changing and we're just going with it. If you'd like to react to the episode or write in with questions or topics for us to discuss, you can reach us at goodwoodpod on Tumblr or goodwoodpod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you.